What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Part 4, Chapter 65 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Magician 1. When, however, Zarathustra had gone round a rock, then saw he on the same path, not far below him, a man who threw his limbs about like a maniac, and at last tumbled to the ground on his belly. "'Halt!' said then Zarathustra to his heart. "'He there must surely be the higher man. From him came that dreadful cry of distress. I will see if I can help him.' When, however, he ran to the spot where the man lay on the ground, he found a trembling old man with fixed eyes, and in spite of all Zarathustra's efforts to lift him and set him again on his feet, it was all in vain. The unfortunate one also did not seem to notice that someone was beside him. On the contrary, he continually looked around with moving gestures like one forsaken, and isolated from all the world. At last, however, after much trembling and convulsion and curling himself up, he began to lament thus. Who warmth me, who loveth me still? Give ardent fingers, give heartening charcoal warmers, prone, outstretched, trembling, like him half dead and cold whose feet won warmth and shaken ah by unfamiliar fevers shivering with sharpened icy cold frost arrows by thee pursued my fancy ineffable recondite sore frightening thou huntsman hide the cloud-banks now lightning struck by thee thou mocking eye that me in darkness watcheth thus do i lie 
bend myself twist myself convulsed with all eternal torture and smitten by thee cruelest huntsman thou unfamiliar god smite deeper smite yet once more pierce through and rend my heart what means this torture with dull indented arrows why look'st thou hither of human pain not weary with mischief-loving godly flash-glances not murder wilt thou but torture torture for why me torture thou mischief-loving unfamiliar god Aha! thou stealest nigh in midnight's gloomy hour what wilt thou speak thou crouched me pressest ah now far too closely thou hearest me breathing thou o'erhearest my heart thou ever jealous one of what pray ever jealous off off for why the latter wouldst thou get in to heart in clamber to mine own secretest conceptions in clamber shameless one thou unknown one thief what seekest thou by thy stealing what seekst thou by thy hearkening what seekst thou by thy torturing thou torturer thou hangman god or shall i as the mastiffs do roll me before thee and cringing enraptured frantical my tail friendly waggle in vain goad further cruelest goader no dog thy game just am i cruelest huntsman thy proudest of captives thou robber hind the cloud-banks speak finally thou lightning-veiled one thou unknown one speak what wilt thou highway ambusher from me what wilt thou unfamiliar god what ransom gold how much of ransom gold solicit much that bits my pride and be concise that bits mine other pride ah aha me once thou me entire ah, and torturest me fool that thou art dead torturest's quite my pride give love to me who warmth me still who loves me still give ardent fingers give heartening charcoal warmers give me the lonesomest the ice ah sevenfold frozen ice for very enemies for foes doth make one thirst give yield to me cruelest foe thyself away 
there fled he surely my final only comrade my greatest foe mine unfamiliar my hangman god nay come thou back with all of thy great tortures to me the last of lonesome ones oh come thou back all my hot tears in streamlets trickle their course to thee and all my final hearty fervour up gloweth to thee oh come thou back mine unfamiliar god my pain my final bliss Two. here however zarathustra could no longer restrain himself he took his staff and struck the wailer with all his might stop this cried he to him with wrathful laughter stop this thou stage player thou false coiner thou liar from the very heart i know thee well i will soon make warm legs to thee thou evil magician i know well how to make it hot for such as thou leave off said the old man and sprang up from the ground strike me no more o zarathustra i did it only for amusement that kind of thing belongeth to mine art thee thyself i wanted to put to the proof when i gave this performance and verily thou hast well detected me but thou thyself hast given me no small proof of thyself thou art hard thou wise zarathustra hard strikest thou with thy truths thy cudgel forceth from me this truth flatter not answered zarathustra still excited and frowning thou stage-player from the heart thou art false why speakest thou of truth thou peacock of peacocks thou sea of vanity what didst thou represent before me thou evil magician whom was i meant to believe in when thou wailest in such wise the penitent in spirit said the old man it was him i represented thou thyself once devisest this expression the poet and magician who at last turneth his spirit against himself the transformed one who freezeth to death by his bad science and conscience and just acknowledge it it was long o zarathustra before thou discoverest my trick and lie thou believest in my distress when thou heldest my head with both thy hands i heard thee lament we have loved him too little loved him too little because i so far deceived thee my wickedness rejoiced in me thou mayst have deceived subtler ones than i said zarathustra sternly i am not on my guard against deceivers 
I have to be without precaution. So willeth my lot. Thou, however, must deceive. So far do I know thee. Thou must ever be equivocal, trivical, quadrivocal, and quinquivocal. Even what thou hast now confessed is not nearly true enough nor false enough for me. Thou bad false coiner, how couldst thou do otherwise? Thy very malady wouldst thou whitewash if thou showed thyself naked to thy physician. Thus didst thou whitewash thy lie before me when thou saidst, I did so only for amusement. There was also seriousness therein. Thou art something of a penitent in spirit. I divine thee well. Thou hast become the enchanter of all the world, but for thyself thou hast no lie or artifice left. Thou art disenchanted to thyself. Thou hast reaped disgust as thy one truth. No word in thee is any longer genuine, but thy mouth is so. That is to say, the disgust that cleaveth unto thy mouth. Who art thou at all? cried here the old magician with defiant voice. Who dareth to speak thus unto me, the greatest man now living? And a green flash shot from his eye at Zarathustra. But immediately after, he changed and said sadly, O oh, Zarathustra, I am weary of it. I am disgusted with mine arts. I am not great. Why do I dissemble? But thou knowest it well. I sought for greatness. A great man I wanted to appear, and persuaded many. But the lie hath been beyond my power. On it do I collapse. O oh, Zarathustra, everything is a lie in me, but that I collapse. This, my collapsing, is genuine. It honoureth thee, said Zarathustra gloomily, looking down with sidelong glance. It honoureth thee that thou soughtest for greatness, but it betrayeth thee also. Thou art not great, thou bad old magician. That is the best and the honestest thing I honour in thee, that thou hast become weary of thyself, and hast expressed it, I am not great. Therein do I honour thee as a penitent in spirit, and although only for the twinkling of an eye in that one moment, wast thou genuine. But tell me, what seekest thou here in my forest and rocks? And if thou hast put thyself in my way, what proof of me wouldst thou have? Wherein didst thou put me to the test? Thus spake Zarathustra, and his eyes sparkled. But the old magician kept silence for a while, then he said, did I put thee to the test? 
i seek only oh zarathustra i seek a genuine one a right one a simple one an unequivocal one a man of perfect honesty a vessel of wisdom a saint of knowledge a great man knowest thou it not o zarathustra i seek zarathustra and here there arose a long silence between them zarathustra however became profoundly absorbed in thought so that he shut his eyes but afterwards coming back to the situation he grasped the hand of the magician and said full of politeness and policy well up thither leadeth the way there is the cave of zarathustra in it mayest thou seek him whom thou wouldst fain find and ask counsel of mine animals mine eagle and mine serpent they shall help thee to seek my cave however is large i myself to be sure i have as yet seen no great man that which is great the acutest eye is at present insensible to it it is the kingdom of the populace many a one have i found who stretched and inflated himself and the people cried behold a great man but what good do all bellows do the wind cometh out at last at last bursteth the frog which hath inflated itself too long then cometh out the wind to prick a swollen one in the belly i call good pastime hear that ye boys our to-day is of the populace who still knoweth what is great and what is small who could there seek successfully for greatness a fool only it succeedeth with fools thou seekest for great men thou strange fool who taught that to thee is to-day the time for it o oh, thou bad seeker why dost thou tempt me thus spake zarathustra comforted in his heart and went laughing on his way notes by anthony m ludovici the magician is of course an artist and nietzsche's intimate knowledge of perhaps the greatest artist of his age rendered the selection of wagner as the type in this discourse almost inevitable most readers will be acquainted with the facts relating to nietzsche's and wagner's friendship and ultimate separation as a boy and a youth nietzsche had shown such a remarkable gift for music that it had been a question at one time whether he should not perhaps give up everything else in order to develop this gift but he became a scholar notwithstanding although he never entirely gave up composing and playing the piano while still in his teens he became acquainted with wagner's music and grew passionately fond of it long before he met wagner he must have idealized him in his mind to an extent which only a profoundly artistic nature could have been capable of nietzsche always had high ideals for humanity if one were asked whether throughout his many changes there was yet one aim one direction and one hope to which he held fast 
one would be forced to reply in the affirmative and declare that aim, direction, and hope to have been the elevation of the type man. Now, when Nietzsche met Wagner, he was actually casting about for an incarnation of his dreams for the German people. And we have only to remember his youth. He was twenty-one when he was introduced to Wagner. His love of Wagner's music and the undoubted power of the great musician's personality, in order to realize how very uncritical his attitude must have been in the first flood of his enthusiasm. Again, when the friendship ripened, we cannot well imagine Nietzsche, the younger man, being anything less than intoxicated by his senior's attention and love, and we are therefore not surprised to find him pressing Wagner forward as the great reformer and saviour of mankind. Wagner in Bayreuth, English edition 1909, gives us the best proof of Nietzsche's infatuation. And although signs are not wanting in this essay which show how clearly and even cruelly he was subconsciously taking stock of his friend, even then the work is a record of what great love and admiration can do in the way of endowing the object of one's affection with all the qualities and ideals that a fertile imagination can conceive. When the blow came, it was therefore all the more severe. Nietzsche at length realized that the friend of his fancy and the real Richard Wagner, the composer of Parsifal, were not one. The fact dawned upon him slowly, disappointment upon disappointment, revelation after revelation ultimately brought it home to him, and though his best instincts were naturally opposed to it at first, the revulsion of feeling at last became too strong to be ignored and Nietzsche was plunged into the blackest despair. Years after his break with Wagner, he wrote The Case of Wagner and Nietzsche contra Wagner, and these works are with us to prove the sincerity and depth of his views on the man who was the greatest event of his life. The poem in this discourse is, of course, reminiscent of Wagner's own poetical manner, and it must be remembered that the whole was written subsequent to Nietzsche's final break with his friend. The dialogue between Zarathustra and the magician reveals pretty fully what it was that Nietzsche grew to loathe so intensely in Wagner, vis-à-vis -vis his pronounced histrionic tendencies, his dissembling powers, his inordinate vanity, his equivocalness, his falseness. Quote, "'It honoureth thee,' says Zarathustra, that thou soughtest for greatness, but it betrayeth thee also, thou art not great. The magician is nevertheless sent as a guest to Zarathustra's cave, for in his heart Zarathustra believed until the end that the magician was a higher man, broken by modern values. End of part four, chapter sixty five. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part four, chapter sixty six of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Out of Service Not long, however, after Zarathustra had freed himself from the magician, he again saw a person sitting beside the path which he followed, namely a tall, black man, 
with a haggard, pale countenance. This man grieved him exceedingly. Alas, said he to his heart, there sitteth disguised affliction. Methinketh he is of the type of the priests. What do they want in my domain? What? Hardly have I escaped from that magician, and must another necromancer again run across my path. Some sorcerer with laying on of hands, some somber wonder-worker by the grace of God, some anointed world-maligner, whom may the devil take? But the devil is never at the place which would be his right place. He always cometh too late, that cursed dwarf and clubfoot. Thus cursed Zarathustra impatiently in his heart, and considered how with averted look he might slip past the black man. But behold, it came about otherwise. For at the same moment had the sitting one already perceived him, and not unlike one whom an unexpected happiness overtaketh, he sprang to his feet and went straight toward Zarathustra. "'Whoever thou art, thou traveller,' said he, "'help a strayed one, a seeker, an old man, who may here easily come to grief. Here the world is strange to me and remote.' wild beasts also did i hear howling and he who could have given me protection he is himself no more i was seeking the pious man a saint and an anchorite who alone in his forest had not yet heard of what all the world knoweth at present what doth all the world know at present asked zarathustra Perhaps that the old god no longer liveth, in whom all the world once believed. Thou sayest it, answered the old man sorrowfully, and I served that old god until his last hour. Now, however, am I out of service, without master, and yet not free, likewise am i no longer merry even for an hour except it be in recollections therefore did i ascend into these mountains that i might finally have a festival for myself once more as becometh an old pope and church father for know it that i am the last pope a festival of pious recollections and divine services now however is he himself dead the most pious of men the saint in the forest who praised his god constantly with singing and mumbling he himself found i no longer when i found his cot but two wolves found i therein which howled on account of his death for all animals loved him then did i haste away had i thus come in vain into these forests and mountains then did my heart determine that i should seek another the most pious of all those who believe not in god my heart determined that i should seek zarathustra 
thus spake the hoary man and gazed with keen eyes at him who stood before him zarathustra however seized the hand of the old pope and regarded it a long while with admiration lo thou venerable one said he then what a fine and long hand that is the hand of one who hath ever dispensed blessings now however doth it hold fast him who thou seekest me zarathustra it is i the ungodly zarathustra who saith who is ungodlier than i that i may enjoy his teaching thus spake zarathustra and penetrated with his glances the thoughts and arrear thoughts of the old pope at last the latter began he whom most loved and possessed him hath now also lost him most lo i myself am surely the most godless of us at present but who could rejoice at that thou serfst him to the last asked zarathustra thoughtfully after a deep silence thou knowest how he died is it true what they say that sympathy choked him that he saw how man hung on the cross and could not endure it that his love to man became his hell and at last his death the old pope however did not answer but looked aside timidly with a painful and gloomy expression let him go said zarathustra after prolonged meditation still looking the old man straight in the eye let him go he is gone and though it honoureth thee that thou speakest only in praise of this dead one yet thou knowest as well as i who he was and that he went curious ways to speak before three eyes said the old pope cheerfully he was blind of one eye in divine matters i am more enlightened than zarathustra himself and may well be so my love served him long years my will followed all his will a good servant however knoweth everything and many a thing even which a master hideth from himself he was a hidden god full of secrecy verily he did not come by his own son otherwise than by a secret ways at the door of his faith standeth adultery whoever extolleth him as a god of love doth not think highly enough of love itself did not that god want also to be a judge but the loving one loveth irrespective of reward and requital when he was young that god out of the orient then he was harsh and revengeful and built himself hell for the delight of his favourites at last however he became old and soft 
and mellow and pitiful more like a grandfather than a father but most like a tottering old grandmother there did he sit shriveled in his chimney corner fretting on account of his weak legs world-weary will-weary and one a day he suffocated of his all too great pity thou old pope said here zarathustra interposing hast thou seen that with thine eyes it could well have happened in that way in that way and also otherwise when gods die they always die many kinds of death well at all events one way or the other he is gone he was counter the taste of mine ears and eyes worse than that i should not like to say against him i love everything that looketh bright and speaketh honestly but he thou knowest it forsooth thou old priest there was something of thy type in him the priest type he was equivocal he was also indistinct how he raged at us this wrath snorter because we understood him badly but why did he not speak more clearly and if the fault lay in our ears why did he give us ears that heard him badly if there was dirt in our ears well who put it in them too much miscarried with him this potter who had not learned thoroughly that he took revenge on his pots and creations however because they turned out badly that was a sin against good taste there is also good taste in piety this at last said away with such a god better to have no god better to set up destiny on one's own account better to be a fool better to be god oneself what do i hear said then the old pope with intent ears oh zarathustra thou art more pious than thou believest with such an unbelief some god in thee hath converted thee to thine ungodliness is it not thy piety itself which no longer letteth thee believe in a god and thine over-great honesty will yet lead thee even beyond good and evil behold what hath been reserved for thee thou hast eyes and hands and a mouth which have been predestined for a blessing from eternity one doth not bless with the hand alone nigh unto thee though thou professest to be the ungodliest one i feel a hell and holy odor of long benedictions i feel glad and grieved thereby let me be thy guest o zarathustra for a single night nowhere on earth shall i now feel better than with thee amen so shall it be said zarathustra with great astonishment up thither leadeth the way there lieth the cave of zarathustra 
gladly forsooth would i conduct thee thither myself thou venerable one for i love all pious men but now a cry of distress calleth me hastily away from thee in my domain shall no one come to grief my cave is a good haven and best of all would i like to put every sorrowful one again on firm land and firm legs who however could take thy melancholy off thy shoulders for that i am too weak long verily should we have to wait until some one reawoke thy god for thee for that old god liveth no more he is indeed dead thus spake zarathustra notes by anthony m ludovici zarathustra now meets the last pope and in a poetical form we get nietzsche's description of the course judaism and christianity pursued before they reach their final break-up in atheism agnosticism and the like the god of a strong warlike race the god of israel is a jealous revengeful god he is a power that can be pictured and endured only by a hardy and courageous race a race rich enough to sacrifice and to lose in sacrifice the image of this god degenerates with the people that appropriate it and gradually he becomes a god of love quote, soft and mellow end quote, a lower middle-class deity who is quote, pitiful end quote. he can no longer be a god who requires sacrifice for we ourselves are no longer rich enough for that the tables are therefore turned upon him he must sacrifice to us his pity becomes so great that he actually does sacrifice something to us his only begotten son such a process carried to its logical conclusions must ultimately end in his own destruction and thus we find the pope declaring that god was one day suffocated by his all too great pity what follows is clear enough zarathustra recognizes another higher man in the ex-pope and sends him to as a guest to the cave end of part four chapter sixty six recording by john van stan savannah georgia part four chapter sixty seven of thus spake zarathustra by friedrich nietzsche translated by thomas common this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. THE UGLIEST MAN And again did Zarathustra's feet run through mountains and forests, and his eyes sought and sought, but nowhere was he to be seen whom they wanted to see, the sorely distressed sufferer and crier. On the whole way, however, he rejoiced in his heart and was full of gratitude what good things said he hath this day given me as amends for its bad beginning what strange interlocutors have i found at their words will i now chew a long while as at good corn small shall my teeth grind and crush them until they flow like milk into my soul when however the path again curved round a rock all at once the landscape changed, and Zarathustra entered into a realm of death. 
Here bristled aloft black and red cliffs, without any grass, tree, or bird's voice, for it was a valley which all animals avoided, even the beasts of prey, except that a species of ugly, thick, green serpent came here to die when they became old. Therefore the shepherds called this valley Serpent Death. Zarathustra, however, became absorbed in dark recollections, for it seemed to him as if he had once before stood in this valley, and much heaviness settled on his mind, so that he walked slowly and always more slowly, and at last stood still. Then, however, when he opened his eyes, he saw something sitting by the wayside, shaped like a man, and hardly like a man, something nondescript. And all at once there came over Zarathustra a great shame, because he had gazed on such a thing. Blushing up to the very roots of his white hair, he turned aside his glance, and raised his foot that he might leave this ill-starred place. Then, however, became the dead wilderness vocal, for from the ground a noise welled up, gurgling and rattling as water gurgleth and rattleth at night through stopped-up water-pipes, and at last it turned into human voice and human speech. It sounded thus. Zarathustra, Zarathustra, read my riddle. Say, say, what is the revenge on the witness? I entice thee back. Here is smooth ice. See to it, see to it, that thy pride doth not here break its legs. Thou thinkest thyself wise, thou proud Zarathustra. Read then the riddle, thou hard nutcracker, the riddle that I am. Say then, who am I? When, however, Zarathustra had heard these words, what think ye then took place in his soul? Pity overcame him, and he sank down all at once, like an oak that hath long withstood many tree-fellers, heavily, suddenly, to the terror even of those who meant to fell it. But immediately he got up again from the ground, and his countenance became stern. I know thee well, said he with a brazen voice. Thou art the murderer of God. Let me go. Thou couldst not endure him who beheld thee. Whoever beheld thee through and through, thou ugliest man, thou tookest revenge on this witness. Thus spake Zarathustra and was about to go but the nondescript grasped at a corner of his garment and began anew to gurgle and seek for words. "'Stay,' said he at last. "'Stay. Do not pass by. I have divined what axe it was that struck thee to the ground. Hail to thee, O Zarathustra, that thou art again upon thy feet.' Thou hast divined, I know it well, how the man feeleth who killed him, the murderer of God. Stay, 
sit down here beside me it is not to no purpose to whom would i go but unto thee stay sit down do not however look at me honour thus mine ugliness they persecute me now art thou my last refuge not with their hatred not with their bailiffs oh such persecution would i mock at and be proud and cheerful hath not all success hitherto been with the well persecuted ones and he who persecuteth well learneth readily to be obsequent when once he is put behind but it is their pity their pity is it from which i flee away and flee to thee o zarathustra protect me thou my last refuge thou sole one who divinest me thou hast divined how the man feeleth who killed him stay and if thou wilt go thou impatient one go not the way that i came that way is bad art thou angry with me because i have already racked language too long because i have already counselled thee but know that it is i the ugliest man who have also the largest heaviest feet where i have gone the way is bad i tread all paths to death and destruction but that thou passest me by in silence that thou blushest i saw it well thereby did i know thee as zarathustra every one else would have thrown to me his alms his pity in look and speech but for that i am not beggar enough that didst thou divine for that i am too rich rich in what is great frightful ugliest most unutterable thy shame o zarathustra honoured me with difficulty did i get out of the crowd of the pitiful that i might find the only one who at present teacheth that pity is obtrusive thyself o zarathustra whether it be the pity of a god or whether it be human pity it is offensive to modesty and unwillingness to help may be nobler than the virtue that rusheth to do so that however namely pity is called virtue itself as present by all petty people they have no reverence for great misfortune 
great ugliness, great failure. Beyond all these do I look, as a dog looketh over the backs of thronging flocks of sheep. They are petty, good-wooled, good-willed, grey people. As the heron looketh contemptuously at shallow pools with backward-bent head, so do I look at the throng of grey little waves and wills and souls. Too long have we acknowledged them to be right, those petty people. So we have at last given them power as well and now do they teach that good is only what petty people call good and truth is at present what the preacher spake who himself sprang from them that singular saint and advocate of the petty people who testified of himself i am the truth that immodest one hath long made the petty people greatly puffed up he who taught no small error when he taught i am the truth hath an immodest one ever been answered more courteously thou however o zarathustra passest him by and saidst nay nay three times nay thou warnest against his error thou warnest the first to do so against pity not every one not none but thyself and thy type thou art ashamed of the shame of the great sufferer and verily when thou sayest from pity there cometh a heavy cloud take heed ye men when thou teachest all creators are hard all great love is beyond their pity o zarathustra how well versed dost thou seem to me in weather signs thou thyself however warn thyself also against thy pity for many are on their way to thee many suffering doubting despairing drowning freezing ones i warn thee also against myself thou hast read my best my worst riddle myself and what i have done i know the axe that felleth thee but he had to die he looked with eyes which beheld everything he beheld men's depths and dregs all his hidden ignominy and ugliness his pity knew no modesty he crept into my dirtiest corners 
this most prying over-intrusive over-pitiful one had to die he ever beheld me on such a witness i would have revenge or not live myself the god who beheld everything and also man that god had to die man cannot endure it that such a witness should live thus spake the ugliest man zarathustra however got up and prepared to go on for he felt frozen to the very bowels thou nondescript said he thou warnest me against thy path as thanks for it i praise mine to thee behold up thither is the cave of zarathustra my cave is large and deep and hath many corners there findeth he that is most hidden his hiding-place and close beside it there are hundred lurking-places and by-places for creeping fluttering and hopping creatures thou outcast who hast cast thyself out thou wilt not live amongst men and men's pity well then do like me thus wilt thou learn also from me only the doer learneth and talk first and foremost to mine animals the proudest animal and the wisest animal they might well be the right counsellors for us both thus spake zarathustra and went his way more thoughtfully and slowly even than before for he asked himself many things and hardly knew what to answer how poor indeed is man thought he in his heart how ugly how wheezy how full of hidden shame they tell me that man loveth himself ah how great must that self-love be how much contempt is opposed to it even this man hath loved himself as he hath despised himself a great lover methinkest he is and a great despiser no one have i yet found who more thoroughly despised himself even that is elevation alas was this perhaps the higher man whose cry i heard i love the great despisers man is something that hath to be surpassed notes by anthony m ludovici this discourse contains perhaps the boldest of nietzsche's suggestions concerning atheism as well as some extremely penetrating remarks upon the sentiment of pity Zarathustra comes across the repulsive creature sitting on the wayside, and what does he do? He manifests the only correct feelings that can be manifested in the presence of any great misery. That is to say, shame, reverence, embarrassment. Nietzsche detested the obtrusive and gushing pity that goes up to misery without a blush either on its cheek or in its heart. The pity which is only another form of self-glorification— Quote, thank god that i am not like thee 
only this self-glorifying sentiment can lend a well-constituted man the impudence to show his pity for the cripple and the ill-constituted in the presence of the ugliest man nietzsche blushes he blushes for his race his own particular kind of altruism the altruism that might have prevented the existence of this man strikes him with all its force he will have the world otherwise he will have a world where one need not blush for one's fellows hence his appeal to us to love only our children's land the land undiscovered in the remotest sea zarathustra calls the ugliest man the murderer of god certainly this is one aspect of a certain kind of atheism the atheism of the man who reveres beauty to such an extent that his own ugliness which outrages him must be concealed from every eye lest it should not be respected as zarathustra respected it if there be a god he too must be evaded his pity must be foiled but god is ubiquitous and omniscient therefore for the really great ugly man he must not exist Quote, their pity is it from which i flee away he says that is to say it is from their want of reverence and lack of shame in presence of my great misery End quote. the ugliest man despises himself but zarathustra said in his prologue quote, i love the great despisers because they are the great adorers and arrows of longing for the other shore End quote. he therefore honors the ugliest man sees height in his self-contempt and invites him to join the other higher men in the cave end of part four chapter sixty seven recording by john van stan savannah georgia part four chapter sixty eight of thus spake zarathustra by friedrich nietzsche translated by thomas common this librivox recording is in the public domain the voluntary beggar when zarathustra had left the ugliest man he was chilled and felt lonesome for much coldness and lonesomeness came over his spirit so that even his limbs became colder thereby when however he wandered on and on up hill and down at times past green meadows though also sometimes over wild stony couches where formerly perhaps an impatient brook had made its bed then he turned all at once warmer and heartier again what hath happened unto me he asked himself something warm and living quickeneth me it must be in the neighborhood already am i less alone unconscious companions and brethren rove around me their warm breath toucheth my soul when however he spied about and sought for the comforters of his lonesomeness behold there were kind there standing together on an eminence whose proximity and smell had warmed his heart the kind however seemed to listen eagerly to a speaker and took no heed of him who approached when however zarathustra was quite nigh unto them then did he hear plainly that a human voice spake in the midst of the kine and apparently all of them had turned their heads toward the speaker 
then ran Zarathustra up speedily, and drove the animals aside, for he feared that someone had here met with harm, which the pity of the kind would hardly be able to relieve. But in this he was deceived. For behold, there sat a man on the ground who seemed to be persuading the animals to have no fear of him. A peaceable man, and preacher on the mount, out of whose eyes kindness itself preached. "'What dost thou seek here?' called out Zarathustra in astonishment. "'What do I here seek?' answered he. "'The same that thou seekest, thou mischief-maker. That is to say, happiness upon earth. To that end, however, I would fain learn of these kind, for I tell thee that I have already talked half a morning unto them, and just now were they about to give me their answer. Why dost thou disturb them? Except we be converted and become as kind, we shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. For we ought to learn from them one thing, ruminating. And verily, although a man should gain the whole world, and yet not learn one thing, ruminating, what would it profit him? He would not be rid of his affliction. His great affliction, that, however, is at present called disgust. Who hath not at present his heart, his mouth and his eyes, full of disgust? Thou also, thou also, but behold these kine. Thus spake the preacher on the mount, and turned then his own look toward Zarathustra. For hitherto it had rested lovingly on the kine. Then, however, he put on a different expression. "'Who is this with whom I talk?' he exclaimed, frightened, and sprang up from the ground. "'This is the man without disgust. This is Zarathustra himself, the surmounter of the great disgust. This is the eye. This is the mouth. This is the heart of Zarathustra himself.' And while he thus spake, he kissed with overflowing eyes the hands of him with whom he spake, and behaved altogether like one to whom a precious gift and jewel hath fallen unawares from heaven. The kine, however, gazed at it all and wondered. "'Speak not of me, thou strange one, thou amiable one,' said Zarathustra, and restrained his affection. "'Speak to me firstly of thyself.' Art thou not the voluntary beggar, who once cast away great riches, who was ashamed of his riches and of the rich, and fled to the poorest to bestow upon them his abundance and his heart? But they received him not. But they received me not, said the voluntary beggar. Thou knowest it, forsooth. So I went at last to the animals— and to those kind. Then learnst thou, interrupted Zarathustra, how much harder it is to give properly than to take properly, and that bestowing well is an art, the last, subtlest master art of kindness. Especially nowadays, answered the voluntary beggar. At present, that is to say, 
when everything low hath become rebellious and exclusive and haughty in its manner in the manner of the populace for the hour hath come thou knowest it forsooth for the great evil long slow mob and slave insurrection it extendeth and extendeth now doth it provoke the lower classes all benevolence and petty giving and the over-rich may be on their guard whoever at present drip like bulgy bottles out of all too small necks of such bottles at present one willingly breaketh the necks wanton avidity bilious envy careworn revenge populous pride all these struck mine eye it is no longer true that the poor are blessed the kingdom of heaven however is with the kine and why is it not with the rich asked zarathustra temptingly while he kept back the kine which sniffed familiarly at the peaceful one why dost thou tempt me answered the other thou knowest it thyself better even than i what was it drove me to the poorest of zarathustra was it not my disgust at the richest at the culprits of riches with cold eyes and rank thoughts who pick up profit out of all kinds of rubbish at this rabble that stinketh to heaven at this gilded falsified populace whose fathers were pickpockets or carrion crows or rag-pickers with wives compliant lewd and forgetful for they are all of them not far different from harlots populous above populous below what are poor and rich at present that distinction did i unlearn then did i flee away further and even further until i came to those kine thus spake the peaceful one and puffed himself and perspired with his words so that the kine wondered anew zarathustra however kept looking into his face with a smile all the time the man talked so severely and shook silently his head thou doest violence to thyself thou preacher on the mount when thou usest such severe words for such severity neither thy mouth nor thine eye have been given thee nor methinketh hath thy stomach either unto it all such rage and hatred and foaming over is repugnant thy stomach wanteth softer things thou art not a butcher rather seemst thou to me a plant-eater and a root-man perhaps thou grindest corn certainly however thou art averse to fleshly joys and thou lovest honey thou hast divined me well answered the voluntary beggar with lightened heart i love honey i also grind corn for i have sought out what tasteth sweetly and maketh pure breath also what requireth a long time a day's work and a mouth's work for gentle idlers and sluggards furthest to be sure have those kind carried it they have devised ruminating and lying in the sun 
they also abstain from all heavy thoughts which inflate the heart well said zarathustra thou shouldst also see mine animals mine eagle and mine serpent their like do not at present exist on earth behold thither leadeth the way to my cave be to-night its guest and talk to mine animals of the happiness of animals until i myself come home for now a cry of distress calleth me hastily away from thee also shouldst thou find new honey with me ice-cold gold-comb honey eat it now however take leave at once of thy kind thou strange one thou amiable one though it be hard for thee for they are thy warmest friends and preceptors one excepted whom i hold still dearer answered the voluntary beggar thou thyself art good o zarathustra and better even than a cow away away with thee thou evil flatterer cried zarathustra mischievously why dost thou spoil me with such praise and flattery honey away away from me cried he once more and heaved his stick at the fond beggar who however ran nimbly away notes by anthony m ludovici in this discourse we undoubtedly have the ideal buddhist if not gautama buddha himself nietzsche had the greatest respect for buddhism and almost wherever he refers to it in his works it is in terms of praise he recognized that though buddhism is undoubtedly a religion for decadence its decadent values emanate from the higher and not as in christianity from the lower grades of society in aphorism twenty of the antichrist he compares it exhaustively with christianity and the result of his investigation is very much in favor of the older religion still he recognized a most decided buddhistic influence in christ's teaching and the words in verses twenty nine thirty and thirty one are very reminiscent of his views in regard to the christian saviour the figure of christ has been introduced often enough into fiction and many scholars have undertaken to write his life according to their own lights but few perhaps have ever attempted to present him to us bereft of all those characteristics which a lack of the sense of harmony has attached to his person through the ages in which his doctrines have been taught now nietzsche disagreed entirely with renan's view that christ was quote, le grand matre and ironie in aphorism thirty one of the antichrist he says that he nietzsche always purged his picture of the humble nazarene of all those bitter and spiteful outbursts which in view of the struggle the first christians went through may very well have been added to the original character by apologists and secretarians who at that time could ill afford to consider nice psychological points seeing that what they needed above all was a wrangling and abusive deity these two conflicting halves in the character of the christ of the gospels which no sound psychology can ever reconcile nietzsche always kept distinct in his own mind he could not credit the same man with sentiments sometimes so noble and at other times so vulgar and in presenting us with this new portrait of the saviour 
purged of all impurities. Nietzsche rendered military honors to a foe, which far exceeded in worth all that his most ardent disciples have ever claimed for him. In verse 26, we are vividly reminded of Herbert Spencer's words, quote, The mariage de convenance is legalized prostitution. End, quote. End of part four, chapter 68. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part four, chapter 69 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Shadow Scarcely, however, was the voluntary beggar gone in haste, and Zarathustra again alone, when he heard behind him a new voice, which called out, Stay, Zarathustra, do wait, it is myself. Forsooth, O Zarathustra, myself, the Shadow. But Zarathustra did not wait, for a sudden irritation came over him on account of the crowd and the crowding in his mountains. Whither hath my lonesomeness gone? spake he. It is verily becoming too much for me. These mountains swarm. My kingdom is no longer of this world. I require new mountains. My shadow calleth me? What matter about my shadow? Let it run after me. I run away from it. Thus spake Zarathustra to his heart, and ran away. But the one behind followed after him, so that immediately there were three runners, one after the other. Namely, foremost the voluntary beggar, then Zarathustra, and thirdly and hindmost his shadow. But not long had they run thus when Zarathustra became conscious of his folly, and shook off with one jerk all his irritation and detestation. What? said he. Have not the most ludicrous things always happened to us old anchorites and saints? Verily, my folly hath grown big in the mountains. Now do I hear six old fools' legs rattling behind one another? But doth Zarathustra need to be frightened by his shadow? Also, methinketh that after all it hath longer legs than mine. Thus spake Zarathustra, and laughing with eyes and entrails, he stood still and turned round quickly, and behold, he almost thereby threw his shadow and follower to the ground, so closely had the latter followed at his heels, and so weak was he. For when Zarathustra scrutinized him with his glance, he was frightened as by a sudden apparition. So slender, swarthy, hollow, and worn out did this follower appear. "'Who art thou?' asked Zarathustra vehemently. "'What doest thou here, and why callest thou thyself my shadow? Thou art not pleasing unto me.' "'Forgive me.' answered the shadow, that it is I, and if I please thee not, well, O Zarathustra, therein do I admire thee and thy good taste. A wanderer am I, who have walked long at thy heels, 
always on the way, but without a goal, also without a home, so that verily I lack little of being the eternally wandering Jew, except that I am not eternal and not a Jew. What? Must I ever be on the way, whirled by every wind, unsettled, driven about? O earth, thou hast become too round for me. On every surface have I already sat. Like tired dust have I fallen asleep on mirrors and window-panes. Everything taketh from me, nothing giveth. I become thin. I am almost equal to a shadow. After thee, however, O Zarathustra, did I fly and high longest, and though I hid myself from thee, I was nevertheless thy best shadow. Wherever thou hast sat, there sat I also. With thee have I wandered about in the remotest, coldest worlds, like a phantom that voluntarily haunteth winter roofs and snows. With thee have I pushed into all the forbidden, all the worst and the furthest, and if there be anything of virtue in me, it is that I have had no fear of any prohibition. With thee have I broken up whatever my heart revered. All boundary stones and statues have I o'erthrown. The most dangerous wishes did I pursue. Verily, beyond every crime did I once go. With thee did I unlearn the belief in words and worths and in great names. When the devil casteth his skin, doth not his name also fall away? It is also skin. The devil himself is perhaps skin. Nothing is true, all is permitted. So said I to myself, Into the coldest water did I plunge with head and heart. Ah, how oft did I stand there naked on that account, like a red crab? Ah, where have gone all my goodness, and all my shame, and all my belief in the good? Ah, where is the lying innocence which I once possessed, the innocence of the good and their noble lies? Too oft, verily, 
Did I follow close to the heels of truth? Then did it kick me on the face. Sometimes I meant to lie. And behold, then only did I hit the truth. Too much hath become clear unto me. Now it doth not concern me any more. Nothing liveth any longer that I love. How should I still love myself? To live as I incline, or not to live at all. So do I wish. So wisheth also the holiest. But alas, how have I still inclination? Have I still a goal? A haven towards which my sail is set? A good wind? Ah, he only who knoweth whither he saileth, Knoweth what wind is good, and a fair wind for him. What still remaineth to me? A heart weary and flippant, an unstable will, fluttering wings, a broken backbone. This seeking for my home, O Zarathustra, dost thou know that this seeking hath been my homesickening? It eateth me up. Where is my home? For it do I ask and seek, and have sought, but have not found it. O eternal everywhere, O eternal nowhere, O eternal in vain. Thus spake the shadow and Zarathustra's countenance lengthened at his words. "'Thou art my shadow,' said he at last sadly. "'Thy danger is not small, thou free spirit and wanderer. Thou hast had a bad day. See that a still worse evening doth not overtake thee. To such unsettled ones as thou seemeth at last even a prisoner blessed.' Didst thou ever see how captured criminals sleep? They sleep quietly. They enjoy their new security. Beware, lest in the end a narrow faith capture thee, a hard, rigorous delusion. For now everything that is narrow and fixed seduceth and tempteth thee. Thou hast lost thy goal. Alas, how wilt thou forego and forget that loss? Thereby hast thou also lost thy way, thou poor rover and rambler, thou tired butterfly. Wilt thou have a rest and a home this evening? Then go up to my cave. Tither leadeth the way to my cave, and now will I run quickly away from thee again. All ready, lieth as it were a shadow upon me.
I will run alone, so that it may again become bright around me. Therefore must I still be a long time merrily upon my legs. In the evening, however, there will be dancing with me. Thus spake Zarathustra. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici Here we have a description of that courageous and wayward spirit that literally haunts the footsteps of every great thinker and every great leader, sometimes with the result that it loses all aims, all hopes, and all trust in a definite goal. It is the case of the bravest and most broad-minded men of today. These literally shadow the most daring movements in the science and art of their generation. They completely lose their bearings and actually find themselves, in the end, without a way, a goal, or a home. Quote, On every surface have I already sat. I become thin. I am almost equal to a shadow. End quote. At last, in despair, such men do indeed cry out, quote, Nothing is true, all is permitted, end quote, and then they become mere wreckage. Quote, Too much hath become clear unto me. Now nothing mattereth to me any more. Nothing liveth any longer that I love. How should I still love myself? Have I still a goal? Where is my home? End quote. Zarathustra realizes the danger threatening such a man. Quote, Thy danger is not small, thou free spirit and wanderer, he says. Thou hast had a bad day. See that a still worse evening does not overtake thee. End quote. The danger Zarathustra refers to is precisely this, that even a prison may seem a blessing to such a man. At least the bars keep him in a place of rest. A place of confinement at its worst is real. Quote, Beware lest in the end a narrow faith capture thee, says Zarathustra, for now everything that is narrow and fixed seduceth and tempteth thee. End, quote. End of part four, chapter sixty nine, recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part four, chapter seventy of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Noontide. And Zarathustra ran and ran, but he found no one else and was alone and ever found himself again. He enjoyed and quaffed his solitude, and thought of good things for hours. About the hour of noontide, however, when the sun stood exactly over Zarathustra's head, he passed an old, bent, and gnarled tree, which was encircled round by the ardent love of a vine, and hidden from itself. From this here hung yellow grapes in abundance, confronting the wanderer. Then he felt inclined to quench a little thirst and to break off for himself a cluster of grapes. When, however, he had already his arm outstretched for that purpose, he felt still more inclined for something else, namely, 
to lie down beside the tree at the hour of perfect noontide and sleep. This Zarathustra did, and no sooner had he laid himself on the ground in the stillness and secrecy of the variegated grass than he had forgotten his little thirst and fell asleep. For as the proverb of Zarathustra saith, one thing is more necessary than the other, only that his eyes remained open, for they never grew weary of viewing and admiring the tree and the love of the vine. In falling asleep, however, Zarathustra spake thus to his heart. Hush, hush, hath not the world now become perfect? What hath happened unto me? As a delicate wind danceth invisibly upon parquetted seas, light, feather light, so danceth sleep upon me. No eye doth it close to me, it leaveth my soul awake. Light is it, verily feather light. It persuadeth me, I know not how. It toucheth me inwardly with a caressing hand. It constraineth me. Yea, it constraineth me so that my soul stretcheth itself out. How long and weary it becometh my strange soul! Hath a seventh-day evening come to it precisely at noontide? Hath it already wandered too long, blissfully, among good and ripe things? It stretcheth itself out, long, longer. It lieth still my strange soul. Too many good things hath it already tasted. This golden sadness oppresseth it, it distorteth its mouth. As a ship that putteth into the calmest cove, it now draweth up to the land, weary of long voyages and uncertain seas. Is not the land more faithful? As such, a ship huggeth the shore, tuggeth the shore, then it sufficeth for a spider to spin its thread from the ship to the land. No stronger ropes are required there. As such a weary ship in the calmest cove, so do I also now repose, nigh to the earth, faithful, trusting, waiting, bound to it with the lightest threads. O oh, happiness, O oh, happiness, wilt thou perhaps sing, O oh, my soul? Thou liest in the grass, but this is the secret, solemn hour when no shepherd playeth his pipe. Take care, Hot noontide sleepeth on the fields. Do not sing. Hush. The world is perfect. Do not sing, thou prairie bird, my soul. Do not even whisper. Lo, 
Hush, the old noontide sleepeth, it moveth its mouth. Doth it not just now drink a drop of happiness? An old brown drop of golden happiness, golden wine. Something whisketh over it, its happiness laugheth. Thus laugheth a god, hush. For happiness, how little sufficeth for happiness. Thus spake I once, and thought myself wise. But it was a blasphemy. That have I now learned. Wise fools speak better. The least thing precisely. The gentlest thing. The lightest thing. A lizard's rustling, a breath, a whisk, an eye glance, little maketh up the best happiness. Hush, what hath befallen me? Hark, hath time flown away? Do I not fall? Have I not fallen? Hark, into the well of eternity. What happeneth to me? Hush, it stingeth me. Alas, to the heart. To the heart. Oh, break up, break up my heart after such happiness, after such a sting. What, hath not the world just now become perfect, round and ripe? Oh, for the golden round ring! Whither doth it fly? Let me run after it. Quick! Uh, hush! And here Zarathustra stretched himself, and felt that he was asleep. Up! said he to himself. Thou sleeper! Thou noontide sleeper! Well then, up, ye old legs! It is time, and more than time. Many a good stretch of road is still awaiting you. Now have ye slept your fill? For how long a time? A half eternity! Well then, up now, mine old heart! For how long after such a sleep mayest thou remain awake? But then did he fall asleep anew, and his soul spake against him and defended itself, and lay down again. Leave me alone. Hush, hath not the world just now become perfect? Oh, for the golden round ball. Get up, said Zarathustra, thou little thief, thou sluggard. What, still stretching thyself, yawning, sighing, falling into deep wells? Who art thou, then, O oh, my soul? And here he became frightened, for a sunbeam shot down from heaven upon his face. O oh, heaven above me, said he, sighing, and sat upright. Thou gazest at me? Thou hearkenest unto my strange soul? 
when wilt thou drink this drop of dew that fell upon all earthly things when wilt thou drink this strange soul when thou well of eternity thou joyous awful noontide abyss when wilt thou drink my soul back to thee thus spake zarathustra and rose from his couch beside the tree as if awakening from a strange drunkenness and behold there stood the sun still exactly above his head one might however rightly infer therefrom that zarathustra had not then slept long notes by anthony m ludovici at the noon of life nietzsche said he entered the world with him man came of age we are now held responsible for our actions our old guardians the gods and demigods of our youth the superstitions and fears of our childhood withdraw the field lies open before us we have lived through our morning with but one master chance let us see to it that we make our afternoon our own see note sixty four part three end of part four chapter seventy recording by john van stan savannah georgia part four chapter seventy one of thus spake zarathustra by friedrich nietzsche translated by thomas common this librivox recording is in the public domain the greeting it was late in the afternoon only when zarathustra after long useless searching and strolling about again came home to his cave when however he stood over against it not more than twenty paces therefrom the thing happened which he now least of all expected he heard anew the great cry of distress and extraordinary this time this cry came out of his own cave it was a long manifold peculiar cry and zarathustra plainly distinguished that it was composed of many voices although heard at a distance it might sound like the cry out of a single mouth thereupon zarathustra rushed forward to his cave and behold what a spectacle awaited him after that concert for there did they all sit together whom he had passed during the day the king on the right and the king on the left the old magician the pope the voluntary beggar the shadow the intellectually conscientious one the sorrowful soothsayer and the ass the ugliest man however had set a crown on his head and had put round him two purple girdles for he liked like all ugly ones to disguise himself and play the handsome person in the midst however of that sorrowful company stood zarathustra's eagle ruffled and disquieted for it had been called upon to answer too much for which its pride had not any answer the wise serpent however hung round its neck all this did zarathustra behold with great astonishment then however he scrutinized each individual guest with courteous curiosity read their souls and wondered anew in the meantime the assembled ones had risen from their seats 
and waited with reverence for Zarathustra to speak. Zarathustra, however, spake thus, Ye despairing ones, ye strange ones, so it was your cry of distress that I heard, and now do I know also where he is to be sought, whom I have sought for in vain to-day, the higher man. In mine own cave sitteth he, the higher man. But why do I wonder? Have not I myself allured him to me by honey-offerings and artful lure-calls of my happiness? But it seemeth to me that ye are badly adapted for company. Ye make one another's hearts fretful, ye that cry for help when ye sit here together. There is one that must first come, one who will make you laugh once more, a good jovial buffoon, a dancer, a wind, a wild romp, some old fool. What think ye? Forgive me, however, ye despairing ones, for speaking such trivial words before you, unworthy verily of such guests. But ye do not divine what maketh my heart wanton. Ye yourselves do it, and your aspect, forgive it me. For every one becometh courageous who beholdeth a despairing one. To encourage a despairing one, every one thinketh himself strong enough to do so. To myself have ye given this power, a good gift, mine honourable guests, an excellent guest's present. Well, do not then upbraid when I also offer you something of mine. This is mine empire, and my dominion. That which is mine, however, shall this evening and tonight be yours. Mine animals shall serve you. Let my cave be your resting place. At house and home with me shall no one despair. In my pearliest do I protect every one from his wild beasts. And that is the first thing which I offer you. Security. The second thing, however, is my little finger. And when ye have that, then take the whole hand also. Yea, and the heart with it. Welcome here, welcome to you, my guests. Thus spake Zarathustra, and laughed with love and mischief. After this greeting his guests bowed once more and were reverentially silent. The king on the right, however, answered him in their name. O Zarathustra, by the way in which thou hast given us thy hand and thy greeting, we recognize thee as Zarathustra. Thou hast humbled thyself before us, almost hast thou hurt our reverence. Who, however, could have humbled himself as thou hast done with such pride? That uplifteth us ourselves, a refreshment is it to our eyes and hearts. To behold this merely gladly would we ascend higher mountains than this, for as eager beholders have we come, we wanted to see what brighteneth dim eyes. And lo, 
now is it all over with our cries of distress now our minds and hearts are opened and enraptured little is lacking for our spirits to become wanton there is nothing o zarathustra that groweth more pleasingly on earth than a lofty strong will it is the finest growth an entire landscape refresheth itself at one such tree to the pine do i compare him o zarathustra which groweth up like thee tall silent hardy solitary of the best supplest wood stately in the end however grasping out for its dominion with strong green branches asking weighty questions of the wind the storm and whatever is at home on high places answering more weightily a commander a victor oh who should not ascend the high mountains to behold such growths at thy tree o zarathustra the gloomy and ill-constituted also refresh themselves at thy look even the wavering become steady and heal their hearts and verily towards thy mountain and thy tree do many eyes turn to-day a great longing hath arisen and many have learned to ask who is zarathustra and those into whose ears thou hast at any time dripped thy song and thy honey all the hidden ones the lone dwellers and the twain dwellers have simultaneously said to their hearts doth zarathustra still live it is no longer worth while to live everything is indifferent everything is useless or else we must live with zarathustra why doth he not come who hath so long announced himself thus do many people ask hath solitude swallowed him up or should we perhaps go to him now doth it come to pass that solitude itself becometh fragile and breaketh open like a grave that breaketh open and can no longer hold its dead everywhere one seeth resurrected ones now do the waves rise and rise around thy mountain o zarathustra and however high be thy height many of them must rise up to thee thy boat shall not rest much longer on dry ground and that we despairing ones have now come into thy cave and already no longer despair it is but a prognostic and a presage that better ones are on the way to thee for they themselves are on the way to thee the last remnant of god among them that is to say all the men of great longing of great loathing of great satiety all who do not want to live unless they learn again to hope unless they learn from thee o zarathustra the great hope thus spake the king on the right and seized the hand of zarathustra in order to kiss it but zarathustra checked his veneration and stepped back frightened 
fleeing, as it were, silently and suddenly into the far distance. After a little while, however, he was again at home with his guests, looked at them with clear, scrutinizing eyes, and said, "'My guests, ye higher men, I will speak plain language and plainly with you. It is not for you that I have waited here in these mountains.' "'Plain language and plainly? Good God!' said here the king on the left to himself. "'One seeth he doth not know the good Occidentals, this sage out of the Orient. "'But he meaneth blunt language and bluntly. "'Well, that is not the worst taste in these days.' "'You may verily, all of you, be higher men,' continued Zarathustra. "'But for me, ye are neither high enough nor strong enough. "'For me, that is to say, for the inexorable, which is now silent in me, but will not always be silent. And if ye appertain to me, still it is not as my right arm. For he who himself standeth like you, on sickly and tender legs, wisheth above all to be treated indulgently, whether he be conscious of it or hide it from himself. My arms and my legs, however, I do not treat indulgently. I do not treat my warriors indulgently. How then could she be fit for my warfare? With you I should spoil all my victories, and many of you would tumble over if ye but heard the loud beating of my drums. Moreover, ye are not sufficiently beautiful and well-born for me. I require pure smooth mirrors for my doctrines on your surface even mine own likeness is distorted on your shoulders presseth many a burden many a recollection many a mischievous dwarf squatteth in your corners there is concealed populace also in you and though ye be high and of a higher type much in you is crooked and misshapen there is no smith in the world that could hammer you right and straight for me. Ye are only bridges. May higher ones pass over upon you. Ye signify steps. So do not upbraid him who ascendeth beyond you into his height. Out of your seed there may one day arise for me a genuine son and perfect heir. But that time is distant. Ye yourselves are not those unto whom my heritage and name belong. Not for you do I wait here in these mountains. Not with you may I descend for the last time. Ye have come unto me only as a presage that higher ones are on the way to me. Not the men of great longing, of great loathing, of great satiety, and that which ye call the remnant of God. Nay, nay, three times nay, for others do I wait here in these mountains, and will not lift my foot from thence without them. For higher ones, stronger ones, triumphanter ones, merrier ones, 
for such as are built squarely in body and soul laughing lions must come oh my guests ye strange ones have ye yet heard nothing of my children and that they are on the way to me do speak unto me of my gardens of my happy isles of my new bountiful race why do ye not speak unto me thereof this guest present do i solicit of your love that ye speak unto me of my children for them am i rich for them i became poor what have i not surrendered what would i not surrender that i might have one thing these children this living plantation these life-trees of my will and of my highest hope thus spake zarathustra and stopped suddenly in his discourse for his longing came over him and he closed his eyes and his mouth because of the agitation of his heart and all his guests also were silent and stood still and confounded except only that the old soothsayer made signs with his hands and his gestures notes by anthony m ludovici here i think i may claim that my contention in regard to the purpose and aim of the whole of nietzsche's philosophy as stated at the beginning of my notes on part four is completely upheld he fought for quote, all who do not want to live unless they learn again to hope unless they learn from him the great hope End quote. zarathustra's address to his guests shows clearly enough how he wished to help them quote, i do not treat my warriors indulgently he says how then could ye be fit for my warfare End quote. he rebukes and spurns them no word of love comes from his lips elsewhere he says a man should be a hard bed to his friend thus alone can he be of use to him nietzsche would be a hard bed to hire men he would make them harder for in order to be a law unto himself man must possess the requisite hardness Quote, i wait for the higher ones stronger ones more triumphant ones merrier ones for such as are built squarely in body and soul he says in paragraph six of higher man quote, ye higher men think ye that i am here to put right what ye have put wrong or that i wished henceforth to make snugger couches for you sufferers or show you restless miswandering misclimbing ones new and easier footpaths nay nay three times nay always more always better ones of your type shall succumb for ye shall always have it worse and harder End quote. End of part four chapter seventy one recording by john van stan savannah georgia Part four, chapter seventy two of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Supper. For at this point the soothsayer interrupted the greeting of Zarathustra and his guests. 
he pressed forward as one who had no time to lose, seized Zarathustra's hand, and exclaimed, "'But, Zarathustra, one thing is more necessary than the other, so sayest thou thyself. Well, one thing is now more necessary unto me than all others. A word at the right time. Didst thou not invite me to table? And here are many who have made long journeys. Thou dost not mean to feed us merely with discourses. Besides, all of you have thought too much about freezing and drowning, suffocating, and other bodily dangers. None of you, however, have thought of my danger, namely, perishing of hunger. Thus spake the soothsayer. When Zarathustra's animals, however, heard these words, they ran away in terror, for they saw that all they had brought home during the day would not be enough to fill the one soothsayer. "'Likewise perishing of thirst,' continued the soothsayer, "'and although I hear water splashing here like words of wisdom, that is to say, plenteously and unweariedly, I want wine.' Not every one is a born water-drinker like Zarathustra. Neither doth water suit weary and withered ones. We deserve wine. It alone giveth immediate vigor and improvised health. On this occasion, when the soothsayer was longing for wine, it happened that the king on the left, the silent one, also found expression for once. "'We took care,' said he, "'about wine. I, along with my brother, the king on the right, we have enough of wine, a whole ass-load of it. So there is nothing lacking but bread.' "'Bread,' replied Zarathustra, laughing when he spake, "'it is precisely bread that anchorites have not. But man doth not live by bread alone, but also—' by the flesh of good lambs, of which I have two. These shall we slaughter quickly, and cook spicily with sage. It is so that I like them. And there is also no lack of roots and fruits, good enough even for the fastidious and dainty, nor of nuts and other riddles for cracking. Thus will we have a good repast in a little while. But whoever wished to eat with us must also give a hand to the work, even the king's, for with Zarathustra even a king may be a cook. This proposal appealed to the hearts of all of them, save that the voluntary beggar objected to the flesh, and wine, and spices. "'Just hear this glutton, Zarathustra,' said he jokingly. "'Doth one go into caves and high mountains to make such repasts?' now indeed do i understand what he once taught us blessed be moderate poverty and why he wisheth to do away with beggars be of good cheer replied zarathustra as i am abide by thy customs thou excellent one grind thy corn drink thy water praise thy cooking if only it make thee glad i am a law only for mine own I am not a law for all. He, however, who belongeth unto me, 
must be strong of bone and light of foot joyous in fight and feast no sulker no jano dreams ready for the hardest task as for the feast healthy and hale the best belongeth unto mine and me and if it be not given us then do we take it the best food the purest sky the strongest thoughts the fairest women thus spake zarathustra the king on the right however answered and said strange did one ever hear such sensible things out of the mouth of a wise man and verily it is the strangest thing in a wise man if over and above he be still sensible and not in ass thus spake the king on the right and wondered the ass however with ill will said ya to his remark this however was the beginning of that long repast which is called the supper in the history books at this there was nothing else spoken of but the higher man notes by anthony m ludovici in the first seven verses of this discourse i cannot help seeing a gentle allusion to schopenhauer's habits as a bon vivant for a pessimist be it remembered schopenhauer led quite an extraordinary life he ate well loved well played the flute well and i believe he smoked the best cigars what follows is clear enough end of part four chapter seventy two recording by john van stan savannah georgia everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars limited time only price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer single item at regular price Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.